Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 88 for April the 17th, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest once again is Mr. Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Good morning, afternoon, evening, Chester. <laughs> we'll, we'll cover all the bases there. Uh, we, we've got a few interesting topics. It's been a little more than a week. Uh, I was out at B-Sides in Austin this week, which was quite cool. And, uh, you know, didn't really have time to record a podcast, unfortunately. But here we are back on the chat chat. And the, the, the story for the last 14 days or more seems to have been just dominated by the Mac is vulnerable. And everybody's getting really wound up about the Mac. There's been several uh, pieces of malware, you know, hitting uh, Apple users. We've seen the what's called flashback or what software calls flash player. Uh, there's been some poison word documents, uh, sabpab and some other things. Is this finally the awakening of malware for the Mac? That's always a difficult question to answer, Chester, is it not? Because whenever something happens on a platform that doesn't already have an awful lot of malware, there are going to be those who jump on a bandwagon going in one direction who say, well, it's just a blip, it's just a blip, it doesn't really count, it's, you know, it's, it didn't affect me, and it only affected a few people, and it doesn't matter. And there'll be people on another bandwagon going, you see, the crooks have woken up, and this is the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning, or the middle of the middle. I suspect the truth is somewhere in between. Whatever it is, though, it is a bit of a wake-up call for many Mac users. For the first time, we have malware in the flashback case, which is particularly widespread, some hundreds of thousands of computers measurably in a botnet. Malware that doesn't actually require the user's intervention in order to get onto the computer. It jumps in through a hole in, in Java. And the issue that even though Java is a third-party application, in Apple's case, it's more like part of the operating system because it's part of their distribution. So for any Mac person who's going, it really can't happen to me, it's only the ill-informed, the gullible, the weak, the unwilling, well, it can happen to you and it might. And it did happen to well-nigh on a million people around the world, it seems. Even if we say half a million computers in a botnet is big by any standards, even Windows. Yeah, I mean, if we look at it percentage-wise, I mean, it's approaching the percentage of computers that were infected with Configure on Windows when you look at, you know, as far as the total number of Macs that might have been infected compared to the total number of Windows machines. You know, even if that stat's not correct, it's still a pretty giant impact. And, and, and one of the, one of the uh, an anecdote, if you will, Paul, is that, you know, when I was at B-Sides, there's a company that uh, we worked with to print the banners, and we're a sponsor of B-Sides in Austin. And we print out these banners, and the company that printed the banners had an infection on their Mac, uh, even though they were protected by a competitor of ours, arguably. But they got infected with flashback, and they couldn't actually get their computers to work properly. You mean they were arguably protected, or this company is arguably a competitor, or a bit of both? I, I, I won't comment on the veracity of the competitor, but the, the reality is they, they got infected, and they weren't able to print our banners. And it turned out the guys at B-Side said, oh, Sophos is a sponsor. So, you know, why don't you remove that competitive product and load the free Sophos Mac antivirus product at sophos.com slash free Mac AV. And they loaded it up. And in fact, we found it and removed it. And Chester had free beers for the rest of the conference, let me guess. <laughs> that sounds like a delightful position to be in, to be able to, you know, jump in willingly and help somebody and, uh, I guess, boost our brand a little bit at the same time. And that's also proof positive that malware can be disruptive, even though that wasn't the primary function of the malware in the first place. 
It may have been to steal your credit card number. It may have been to play a tune at 5pm on Friday. But a bug is a bug is a bug. And with malware, how on earth do you test it? Well, the answer is you test it on the unwitting people on whom it's installed anyway. That's not exactly a horror story, but it does go to show that security matters. It does. And, and I guess, you know, the, the reality is, you know, we recommend, of course, that people load antivirus and we offer it for free for Mac users. Chester, we also need to bear in mind that if you have acquired security software of the antivirus sort, loosely speaking, for the Mac from the App Store, it isn't going to be able to do any reasonable sort of malware prevention. App Store programs are disqualified from having things like kernel drivers which makes it pretty hard or impossible to put an on-access scanning filter into the operating system, which means that you can't reliably intercept all sorts of file access. So you might be able to block some web downloads, but not stuff that comes in email, not USB keys, not stuff that pops in through an exploit. Uh, the bottom line is, if you got an antivirus from the App Store, it almost certainly doesn't have any kind of real-time preventative functionality. So be very, very careful. Yeah, I mean, at that point, the best you can do is know that your banking credentials have been stolen after the fact rather than in any kind of real-time manner. So Apple's done some other things to try and improve security recently. And uh, the, the, unfortunately, they didn't kind of announce this to the community, which is a little scary to me. And that it, people started seeing on their iPhones and iPads and other uh, iTunes accessible devices and interfaces this notice going, you need to set some security questions and you need to give us a secondary email address. And unfortunately, in my experience, this is, you know, something I see in phishing attacks frequently where they're trying to get you to give up information that is, in fact, you know, going to criminals. And the other thing, of course, Chester, in a lot of phishing attacks, they quite deliberately ask for a bit more information than is strictly necessary so they can sell it on later. So we they might ask for credit card number, CVV, birth date, and PIN. And of course, the birth date and PIN are completely irrelevant to a credit card transaction. But if you're not thinking clearly, you might just put them in thinking, okay, it's, a, it's an additional security check. So you're quite right. The fact that you suddenly get unexpectedly asked new questions is indeed a cause from concern. But I, but I guess the good thing is that they're they're finally recognizing that people's Apple IDs that the, that we use on our iPhones and iPads and stuff to buy apps. Unfortunately, many of us choose you know low strength passwords because we have to type them on a smartphone and a touch screen and this kind of thing. Chester, is that is that because you know things like iTunes? Is there a lot of is there a lot of uh, money involved in that? Is the transaction volume quite high? Well, arguably, there's a quarter billion, you know, accounts on iTunes, and each one of those has a credit card associated with them that can buy anything, anytime. I guess that leads to the idea of these secondary security questions. I can particularly see the point for services like, you know, Hotmail, Gmail, Facebook, etc., that if your password and your main email account gets compromised, then you may never actually know that something has gone wrong, and then you, you've got a really difficult job to go in and fix stuff. But isn't there a concomitant and significant risk? You're giving away to somebody else a whole load of security questions that are effectively equivalent to your password, the answers to which can never be changed. A lot of people who set up these questions have things like, what is your mother's maiden name? Where did you go to school? What was the name of your first pet? Well, you can only have one first pet. It does seem that, in many ways, these, this secondary authentication 
could end up being a burden that we'll have to live with for ages, because those answers could be known to very many providers and could be leaked from any of them, surely. Well, I think there's a difference between what we might call knowledge-based authentication and secondary authentication, in that, you know, the idea of knowledge-based authentication is I forgot my password and what was my first high school to recover it. And those systems are clearly vulnerable, and that looks like what might have been involved in the global payment scandal uh, with the payment processor that had 10 million credit cards stolen a few weeks ago. When you're using it as a secondary authentication mechanism, in which case I've already authenticated using my legitimate username and password, and now in addition to that, because I'm suspicious, I ask you that secondary question, I'm a little less worried about that. I think what you're suggesting, and I'm being somewhat cynical and sort of security hard-nosed here, is that you can bolster a password mechanism that isn't quite strong enough by supplementing it with a second system which isn't even as strong as that. Surely if you are worried about the security of the first system, then you either augment it or replace it with one which is better. It's like the idea that if I take an encryption algorithm and encipher something, and then I encipher it again with a weaker cipher, I don't get something that's the sum of the parts, and I might even introduce additional vulnerabilities by doing the second weaker part later. I don't, I don't entirely agree in that uh, if you only trigger these secondary mechanisms when there's something suspicious or an IP address outside of the normal realm of what that user does, I, I don't see that as being such a big risk. The reality is what Apple's doing is clearly a response to a threat. And clearly Apple IDs are being targeted. There's a lot of money going through the Apple ecosystem and purchasing apps and games and music and all these other things that they're doing. And their reaction to this without notifying the public scared me a little bit, but I can't say it. I can't argue that it's bad. I just can't also argue that it's good. In which case, one could argue that it it's uh, perhaps money not entirely wisely spent. But it did make me think, Chester, you may have seen in the news recently that Philippe Stark, the famous French designer, has been noted as saying, oh, I'm working on something Apple-related, and I can't tell you what it is. It's coming out in about eight months' time. And everyone's speculating it's the yacht that he was designing for Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs died. But perhaps he's working on a really groovy, cool, usable, ergonomic, funky-looking two-factor authentication token. Because wouldn't that be a really good way to go? I, I, I think it would be awesome. And if Apple actually cared enough about security to do anything at all to enhance people's experience, I would applaud them immediately. And I find it highly unlikely. Or someone will go, hey, there's an app for that. And of course, there are many soft token apps. They're not quite as secure as having the real thing. But it doesn't count if it's on the same device, does it? No, no. Uh, well, there, there's some other news uh, this week that I, I noticed you wrote a... News that doesn't involve Apple. Yes, it in fact involves Apple's arch rival, which we saw the FCC finally take action against Google for their behavior around uh, sniffing everybody's Wi-Fi access points when driving their little cars around doing their Google Maps game and, and mapping Wi-Fi points. And they were fined $25,000, but I think the message might have been lost a little bit in the stories that were told on the internet and many of them I read. Like, Google was fined $25,000 for actually stealing all of our personal information and looking at things they had no business to look at. That's not my interpretation at all, Chester. Because this happened a long time ago and it looked as though it had all gone to bed in the United States, 
uh, as it had in Australia, where, ironically, the Privacy Commissioner found that Google probably had violated Australian privacy law, but there was nothing in said law which would allow a sanction against the company. It looks as though the FCC sort of fell out with Google over Google's response to getting to the bottom of all of this. Correct. Although there is still the question about, has the data been destroyed? Well, Google's between a little bit of a rock and a small hard place on that one, aren't they? Because their initial response was, and I believe some privacy commissioners actually insisted on this, right, you must destroy this data immediately and prove to us that it no longer exists. And others went, hang on a minute, we want to have a nice investigation of this, so you must hang on to it. So Google was a bit, got into a little bit of a catch-22 there. I think the bigger question that it raises, and the, the, the article I wrote on Naked Security attracted a lot of commentary from people in two quite distinct camps about this, and no one really down the middle. Firstly, hey, it's Wi-Fi data, it's unregulated spectrum, you didn't encrypt it, like, who cares? Other people saying, actually, Google's systematic collection of this and Street View data and more for massive commercial purposes is in itself the underlying problem. The fact that they're slurping up all this data, knowing that it includes some stuff that people probably didn't intend to reveal, do we really want our internet future to have this sort of industrialized collection, indexing, and systemized searchable publication? You know, it does have a negative effect on privacy. And whilst it has many benefits, it would be nice if we could find a way of doing it that's opt-in, not opt-out. Well, and I think about the way I use things like Street View and that I often am only looking for a business. You know, I want to find this little coffee shop. Somebody told me about it online. And if I'm a business, I want my thing on Street View. You know, I want the promotion. I want the ability to, for my customers to find me online and see where I'm at on that street and be able to find me. But I don't know anybody who necessarily says that about their home or their cottage or anything else. You know, maybe that's a dividing line. Maybe when you're in a commercial district, you know, I can't, I can't imagine a business that wouldn't want the promotion of being identified on Google Maps. But as an individual, I also would use the opposite argument and say I can't find someone who would be willing to want their home to be identified on Google Maps. So perhaps you're right, Chester. I mean, let's think about it that if, if Google can make something like Gmail successful on such a huge scale where you have to sign up, have a password, there's some kind of authentication, you choose to join, all of that. If they can make that work, and if they can have programmers who are smart enough to take maps, satellite photographs, and aerial photographs at all different resolution scales, types, angles, and stitch them together into a one-world map, then you imagine that it is not beyond probability that they could build an opt-in system for Street View, where you sign up for the service, indicate your location, and there you go. One reason I've heard why that would be very, very hard, of course, is high-rise buildings in uh, regenerated city CBDs. Do you have to get the buy-in from everyone in the building? Maybe we actually need laws that says, yes, you do. You can't just infer consent because a vocal minority happened to want it. I'd like to thank everyone down at B-Sides Austin to wrap up in conclusion. Uh, they invited me down to do a cloud security talk, and I got to participate in a panel and things down there. And I encourage everyone to participate in local security organizations, whether it be your local ISSA group, OWASP, whatever. If you happen to have a B-Sides, you're near DerbyCon, whatever it is, like go out there, participate. I learned so much from the folks down in Austin that I can't thank them enough. So thank you for that. And uh, Paul, uh, do you have any parting thoughts? Yes, Chester, I would like to mention one thing which we have 
put onto our website recently, which I really like. Go to sophos.com forward slash stay safe, and you will find a load of tools and tips and posters and email blasts and stuff that you can use in an organization if you're part of one of the security groups you mentioned, or just to your friends and family with some starting points that will make us all live in a safer online world. That's advice about what to do with passwords, about using encryption when you're moving files around. Just stuff that actually reminds us that the little things actually can make an enormous difference. Well, that concludes Software Security Chat Chat episode 88. Thank you for joining us once again. As always, the latest security news is available at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Our podcasts are available at podcast.sophos.com on iTunes and via RSS. And until next time, stay secure.